So I was putting on top of my heap, on top, on top of my candles, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, two questions that I think are kind of related to each other. And it's questions about uh, standing meditation and uh, walking meditation and kind of how to, where to put the focus when you are doing standing medica- meditation or when you are doing the walking. Like th- the second question was like, what do you do when a difficult feeling or difficult experience arise during the walking? So in regards to the standing meditation, it was like where where would it be helpful to put the focus on? Would it be uh, would it be beneficial to put it onto the body bodily sensations or the feeling of the breath? And I mean, I would say both are fine as a focus for, like, say, for standing meditation. But I would emphasize to at least for one standing for one standing session I would really emphasize stay with what you are choosing yeah? if you choose to focus on the breath stay with the breath don't hop from here to there um, I, for people new to the practice I usually emphasize as well for the walking as for the standing meditation to really focus more on the physical sensations because in a way it is when when you are moving or when you are also when you are standing they are they are quite obvious they are quite strong they are quite um, easy to approach so i would really recommend choose the physical sensations that you experience what i find always very important also to put the emphasis on and the Ajahn has done this in all his teachings so far the focus is on embodiment that means really feel it don't think about it yeah? because sometimes we can and I think that can easily happen in the walking meditation that we kind of think about walking, but we are actually not really internally, almost like in alignment with it. Yeah? We, are, we are kind of thinking of what we are doing, but we are actually not really um, feeling the experience. We are not really into directly experiencing like the physical sensations that go along with it. I always also recommend with the walking meditation to allow a natural pace, especially in the beginning and when you are new to it, allow a natural pace to unfold. Yeah? It's like with the breath, we don't, when we focus on the breath, we don't we don't force the breath in any way. We are allowing it to flow freely. And with the, with the walking, it's, it's somehow similar. Allow, it's kind of getting to know the body also, to, to know like what is the natural movement right now. And often we, 
in whatever we are doing, we are having concepts of how we should do things, yeah? And maybe just dropping all that and connecting with what is natural right now, what comes almost effortlessly by itself. If you have um, difficult uh, emotions or difficult bodily sensations arising during the walking, I mean, the first thing I would do is just maybe stop, ground yourself and see what is actually happening. Where is where is the difficult sensation? Where does it manifest in the body? How does it manifest in the body? Is there anything I need to do right now about this? Like say sometimes when I have done long walking meditation I start getting uh, say like pain in the lower back. Sometimes I go to the end of the path and I just kind of bend over to relax the pain a little bit. Yeah. If you find that helpful, of course, that's what you could do. I don't know if there is anything more to it from the questioner, but I think that would be my answer to this. Ajahn, would you like to say more? Thank you. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think basically you know, I agree with everything Ajahn says. Um, it's good to, you know, what we call the outer form is going to be the, the one that you really can go to pretty pretty quickly and good, which is the sensations. It means you're tracking the occurrence of sensations, and I call that your your basic form. You know, and it, but essentially, <clears throat> in terms of practice, you you've got to go to where your mind, where your awareness actually finds itself most comfortably interested and settled. So you, you can kind of present that, and that, I think the mind will like that because it's steadying. Okay, there we are. I know what I'm doing. Grounded, right? Plump, plump, plump. And then, you know, what would tend to happen afterwards? The mind becomes more sort of settled. It will start to detect subtler qualities, uh, such as uh, like calling energies. Mm-hmm. Which are kind of they're there, but they don't come immediately to the fore, and and in fact becomes more apparent. So that the actual, almost the energies are like the invisible current that the sensations that connects all the sensations. You you may not detect that at first, but then you get something that's actually the only drawback. The drawback with sensations is you get bock. With energy, you get it doesn't. There's no break. So as your as your mind settles, then it may come to a place where it feels oh, I can just cruise on that. But um, you know, for actual a sense of having a real focusable object to to access and to come back to, then sensations are the most readily available. Walking particularly because you've got that, you know, depending how fast you're going, got that regular thing to come back to. You're thinking and pop, you're thinking and then, oh, thinking, oh, and then, oh. Keeps breaking through the, you know, the clouds of thought. Standing, sensations, 
can be perhaps you know have, don't have quite that same quality to them because you're not moving. So just the grounding feet and the subtler sensations just to do with what it, what occurs when we hold the body up, legs, feet, shoulders back. Again, you you sketch in a form, a felt form, and within that, again, as your mind settles, you maybe it will start to discern energies, and so it's really you don't have to change. What happens is the very object starts to change as as your mind develops. Okay, I'll try to take one. Okay, this. Well, I don't know if this really is one question. It's um, awareness and mindfulness. What's the difference? What's resting in awareness or being the one who knows, which are expressions used in the Thai forest tradition. So awareness, resting in it. What does chitta mean? And uh, how do you refer to the traditional Theravada teachings? Relationship between unconditioned pure chitta and conditioned chitta. Mm. Right. So there's a couple more, but I'll just start with that. So here, talking. So basically, um, you know. I'll say, you know because Buddha was experience, had an experience, experience, had, had experiences, and some of them profoundly transformative. So he's trying to find some words to put around this experience. You know, so he's, he obviously he's got the the language of the time. He's, you know, well, this sense of being present, aware, something, knowing. Chitta, heart, mind, chitta, you know, whatever that referred to in, in that in that context. And it's not you remember when we use you see when we use a word like that we say the chitta as if it's a thing. But in the Pali you don't have the word the, you just have chitta. So sometimes it's not exactly a thing so much as a state. Uh, it's not exactly, it's in our substance, it's a quality. Just like with time, you know, or happiness. We don't have a, you know, you can use a word, but it's not really exactly a thing, it's, a, it's an experienceable. And jitta is the basis of experience. That is, something happens to jitta, something occurs to. Uh, this is disturbed. Disturbance happens to you know, me, you could say. But uh, the me is not the body, it's not thought, it's not, it's a quality that behind all that. So we, we call it awareness. <coughs> The sense of I. 
if you say I and you hear that word I what happens you know if you say I am that's different I am English I'm a monk I'm hungry I'm tired but just I a sense of I okay that's one way of pointing to it so um, it's not really an object that you can say there it is because it's behind the object so chitta you can't see it you can see what it, it it goes into so it's the subject you can't make an object out of a subject you can't oh there it is no it's here you can't see it out there because it's here (laughs) and yet it's you know behind everything so that's what I refer to Um, and in the suttas there also are different um, there's different strata of language, you've got a very old thing going 2,600, 500 years. India, Sri Lanka, Thailand, Burma. Now it's coming to all these different languages, coming to the West. So this, and you know, even in even in India, they they you start off with the Buddha talking a very direct experience, and then then people start to teach it. Oh, that's interesting, Chitta, and they start to write about it. So then it becomes a metaphysical thing. How many, how, you know, so the Abhidharma rendition of Chitta, which is somewhat later, expresses it as a moment of mind. You know, so there are, and they say, well, how long is a moment? There are so many million mind moments every <laughs> second. So they kind of get to that. They're trying to get precise about it and and metaphysical about it so the Abhidharma is a metaphysical exposition mm. now then the tradition then goes into uh, the Sri Lanka and in Sri Lanka you have this uh, lot of influence from India and um, they uh, invasions from India so Sri Lanka is trying to keep their, keep their Hindu stuff out so this chitta comes over, oh, oh, sounds like an immortal self. We don't want that, because that's, that's Hinduism. <laughs> so again, this adds a certain coloration. The Thais didn't have that problem. So to them, they're quite happy with chitta as being a kind of soul or spirit or essence or, you know. Uh, so they, they, they're much more chitta oriented as as one's empirical self. Risky thing to say. It's the sense of I that's there, you know, that's here, that everything is happening to. The receptor. So you can't get behind it because it's behind everything. (laughs) So you have existence which is the stuff that goes on and it's, it's, it's kind of often 
phantasmagorical. You know, it's kind of woven with perceptions and interpretations and viewpoints and blurring and, you know, so it, it's, it's said to be non, non, doesn't have an absolute reality. It's dependent. You know, citta, which is reality, but it doesn't have an existence. So, chew that one over. <laughs> Now, getting to more kind of practical um, application. Um, <clears throat> so mindfulness is is not the same you know, through through the tradition. So as I say, there are various strands of what we call Theravada. Actually, the word Theravada wasn't used commonly until 1950. So <laughs> the idea of the Theravada tradition, there are many many lineages and sub sub schools have kind of have a have a, a lot in common that now we classify as Theravada. But that classification didn't happen until nineteen fifty. <laughs> so you know we create Buddhism. We say, oh that's Buddhism. They didn't use the word Buddhism. They didn't use the word Theravada. They said, well we practice you know Dhamma. So, <clears throat> so this sense of mindfulness, but mindfulness is, is pretty clearly configured throughout all that uh, as as um, to do with that which bears something in mind. It's a it's a conditioned phenomenon, it's a conditioned um, function of the mind to hold something in mind, to bear it in mind. So it's it's held to be a universal quality that we all have some capacity to bear things in mind, otherwise we'd be, you know, delirious, demented, psychotic. So we we can sustain an impression, um, and you can hold something in mind, and you can stay with it, and having done so, you can examine it. So mindfulness is that function to hold something in mind. Awareness is is the very quality that you hold your mindfulness. Your mindfulness holds something against that awareness. Right? So, So it sustains an object. Mindfulness holds an object. Awareness is the subject. And in um, again in practice practice traditions or some of the practice traditions you know phrases like <coughs> the one who knows which is puru in Thai but again that's not the Thai language is somewhat different from English in that often they don't really have so much, so much nouns and verbs so you have something like the knowingness that which is the knowingness rather than the one who knows it's that which is the knowingness. <laughs> yeah. uh, and so it means really sustained, sustained mindfulness. So sustained mindfulness and sampajanya, which is the ability to fully feel and comprehend and sensitize and take in. So that's called, so that, 
establishing that and that being present acts like a kind of a, for someone who's cultivated a lot that acts almost as a fairly constant quality their, their trained mind has that quality of whatever happens it held in mind they're not they're not asleep they notice sustain noticing and um, so that's what that expression is about so it's just a kind of colloquial expression used in that those lineages it's not like some one thing you know that, that is knowing it's it's the knowing the, the, that which is the knowingness resting in awareness is <coughs> when there is sustained mindfulness then you know, we can say there's the breath or the thought or the mantra or the sensation sustaining as you sustain it. Jitta, the awareness is with that and then the awareness also is with oh, there is mindfulness. Yeah. And it begins to um, um, when mindfulness holds things steady, so the things are not being reacted to, the quality of awareness is distilled. It, it sort of separates from the objects. So you can rest in that quality of knowing. It means there's no reactivity to, to phenomena. Uh, but again, these are, these are kind of colloquial terms to refer to particular cultivations or degrees of cultivation in terms of meditation you know and they're colloquial they're not metaphysical absolutes they're not philosophical notions they're just colloquial expressions that a group will pass around oh yeah yeah right yeah you know okay right? so <clears throat> but they're useful and language will always continue to evolve and people will find different ways to express what they're experiencing. So these are not nailed down. These are, the words are fairly fluid. <coughs> Anything on that? Hello. I I would almost like come in with some another, not really question, but maybe a suggestion of maybe like jitta is kind of one aspect of mind and maybe to clarify a little bit between jitta and mano. Okay. It might be helpful also from what right, I heard right, in, right. in the interviews. Okay, thank you. Yeah. So, you know, Jitta is that which is liberated. So it's called Jitta Vimutti is, is liberation. Jitta is called, you know, sometimes you see these suttas where it says da 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 and realizing this and birth is finished. Jitta is Vimutti. It's liberated. So Jitta is that which can be liberated. So it's like, you know, spirit, yeah, some kind of quality that can actually be the let, let go. Uh, now, <coughs> Um, so, and jitta is that which goes while it, before it's liberated, it, um, you know, birth after birth manifests in it. It keeps, 
it keeps moving out and establishing what are called aggregates, such as form. It means it keeps formulating, it keeps formulating experience. Um, it's, it's like a so the image can be one of a spider that's pulling silk out of its body to create a web that runs around on. Yeah. So this is the chitta, but unliberated. It keeps creating these world to run around on. <coughs> and uh, so it's that very dynamic within within our experience. Now, chitta is not connected to the senses, directly connected to the senses. Mm. So, if this sensory world is is uh, manifest, then then what occurs is jitta generates uh, or runs out into various forms of consciousness, which is that which mediates between sense contact and jitta. So we see and we're affected. The affected is the jitta. The seeing is the, is the, the consciousness, seeing consciousness brings that to the chitta. It brings it through perception, feeling. Now, chitta generates something called mano, which we again means mind. Mano is like the secretary. So chitta is blind, deaf, dumb. It just feels things, and so it's, uh, so mano is that which organizes. So it gives you a thought, gives you an impression. So it's it's the, the mind that connects jitta to the other senses, which means that when I see something, my eyes basically discern light shape, colour. Really they should discern light and colour. Right? That's what that's what the eyeball sees. And then but what I see is people. How come? What happened? Light, right? Light? Degrees of light and colour? People. Where do the people come from? That's that's what Mano does. It says that thing there that represents so and so, so and so. That's that's her knee. That's that that thing there. Rather than just seeing these kind of different shades of that's her body and that's the cushion, it picks out, it differentiates her Mano consciousness, and then says, "You're seeing, you're looking at these people." Jitta goes, oh, "People, oh." <laughs> Depending, depending how that, what that perception strikes it as, you know, because it has perception. So, perception could be all oh, fear, all oh, people. It could be all oh, lovely people, you know. It could be a mixture, and it changes. So that resonating, that is the trembling of chitta, and mano presents these objects, creates these objects. And chitta also, as it, as it reacts, as it responds. It sends out signals. Mano organizes those signals. 
says, you know, okay. Menno's the secretary, so it says, okay, uh, right. It organizes them by creating a thought. That's so-and-so, so-and-so, that's so-and-so. Do this, do that. It creates thoughts. It creates, it says, focus on that form. It, it acts as the hand of the mind, a hand of jitta. It's never liberated. <laughs> it's liberated when jitta stops doing it. It's just a function. It's, it's, it's neither good nor bad. It's just a function. It has its own, it's a mechanism. Mm. Yeah. So it does this. You, it, that's what it's supposed to do. It has no ethical basis. Jitta does have an ethical basis. And jitta can be fearful, joyful, it can be affected by sorrow, pain, it can react with greed or passion or love or compassion. So it can respond in those ways and then mano will formulate that response into, into an action, a word, a thought, an, an idea. So that's how that, that works. And so this process is process whereby, you know, from that enlightened perspective, this is how the world is created. By which I don't mean, you know, planet Earth, I mean your world is generated that way. So, so the um, there's something about unconditioned pure citta, conditioned citta. Well, the conditioned citta is that which is still affected by degrees of un- unknowing. So it, it is still, you know, we we arrive in this world. We it is conditioned. It's conditioned to. Um, be embodied, is conditioned to uh, resp- um, respond, to to, pers- to to generate objects, and to try to find something in those objects, generate a world, and to try to find a place in the world where it feels comfortable. Of course, you know, well, what do I say? <laughs> So it generates a world, like the spider. It generates a web and runs around in it, trying to find a place to settle down. But the nature of it is it has to keep spinning it to keep it going. So it can't quite settle down because the web is constantly breaking up. So it it keeps spinning it. When it spins it has memories, thoughts, anticipations, projects, um, moods, emotions, feelings, it keeps spinning all that. So where, where's the place where it's really steady and stable? And it keeps doing it. And it keeps breaking up. That's the, con- that's the conditioned chitta. So it runs on, and it's said to run on from birth to birth to birth to birth to birth, on and on and on, till it stops generating a web to run on. That's the unconditioned. 
is when it that stops. I don't want to make condition sound like it's evil because uh, you know we have to operate or jitta has to operate through assembling and gathering the most skillful, useful conditions possible to at least eliminate the nasty stuff and the really sticky stuff and the stuff that's going to really, you know, perpetuate this thing. So you generate skillful conditions such as mindfulness and um, discernment and integrity. So those are transpersonal qualities that jitta is can be trained to generate. It can also the spider can also generate a path uh, out of that. And that's our practice. So in this, um, so somebody's asking about. This is karma. Somebody, so you know, somebody's asking, what is karma? Well, karma is this action, this action of spinning, doing things. So karma literally means action to make or to do. It's a very simple, modest word. Karma to do. <coughs> Um, but so this was a word that was around at the time of the Buddha, and people had different different understandings of what that meant. Um, so some some people felt it was just kind of like a wheel that was just rolling on and on and on. You, you just had to hang in till it finished. And the Buddha said, no, this this driving force that's generating things all the time is generated through intention means a certain motivation. This means you can you can turn it, you can change it, because it's generated not it's not fatalism. It's not it's not like we are stuck on this wheel until it finishes. No. It means every moment you've got a chance to just put some tilt on that wheel, on that movement. You can incline it. You can say, I'm going this way or that way. You've got a degree of free cho- of choice. It's not bound. So in Buddhist karma associated with the ability to choose. And that's what makes it the Buddha only use words that would be helpful for liberation. He wasn't trying to define the world. He said only the words and the terms that are useful for liberation, that's all I'm going to concern myself with. So this one, karma, you can use this to indicate you have the ability to act and you have a degree of freedom on that. You can discern skillful from unskillful and you can turn it. You can discern stress from non-stress and you can turn it. And so this way the, 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 moment, the karmic qualities can lead to the end of that needing to create. Now, karma is the action. The nature of this karma is every action produces a consequence called old karma. So, this is where it gets a bit difficult. Karma literally means the action, but it's also 
used to refer to the results of the action. It's called old karma. In other words, vipaka, vipaka, old karma. Means having act, having acted in this way, or an intention having gone that way, there's this result. Okay? This is the result. Uh, so every action must produce a result. And we say, well, to a certain extent, you know, uh, generating forces brought us to this place. That was our karma. We decided, we acted. Uh, all kinds of actions we've, we've followed through because it's, these choices are being made, you know, many times an hour. Your mind is flickering this way, this way. Should I do this? Fancy that. And you're trying to witness which, which actions are driven by compulsion, delusion. You don't even know what you're doing, you're just reacting. Or at least know what you're doing and then start to see from the results. That doesn't go very far. That, that actually takes me somewhere that's useless. So through that, through effect, by witnessing consequences, say, no, no, not that one. This is the way you learn, field work. Yeah. And you've got certain guidelines like precepts and then you've got to trust awareness of results and long term results. Well, every every action produces a result, but you have a choice to continue acting upon that. So every result doesn't have to generate another choice, another action. So, for example, we might have said something, blurted something out, boop, said something, bad feeling, ook, result. Now I could continue to act in that way, or I could also beat myself up about it, or I could say, got it, enough of that, let it go. Instead of all those, the best thing is acknowledge the fault, let it go. Then there's the end of that. It's not, you've ended some karma. So kind of what we're doing really Meditation or Dharma practice is the sort of uh, um, um, sort of intensive way of of working through karma because you can you heightening your awareness you've got a chance to see the results you've got a chance to also see what habits you've established what track, what ruts you've got into, what skillful, what unskillful, and you've got to show them, enough, no more of that. Stop that. Pull back. You know? So it's, it's the heightened learning process, is meditation. And then there's a possibility of not reacting, ending karma. And this means that then what you're doing is you're beginning to dismantle this web of that the jitta has run around and the jitta itself is dismantling it saying I don't need that anymore that goes nowhere useful that's just a fantasy so the web gets thinner lighter and all the time jitta gets stronger wiser until eventually 
doesn't need a web. Then it, it's called resting in awareness. So that's that's the liberation and karma. Just, I've just asked Ajahn to just have a stop there because I have two questions here that actually fit quite well in with what you have been just saying. Um, the, one, the first one is, and I read them out because they're very short, is the goal to awaken in this world or to, wa- to awaken from this world? And what is the relationship between healing and awakening? So I, I really like the image with the spider. And um, like for, for, the first, for the first question, it is like um, awakening is when the spider stops weaving. Yeah? The, the spider isn't busy anymore in creating more conditions. So awakening actually uh, means something like to see through the conditionings that are, that we are creating by creating our inner worlds. Yeah? So Awakening means to understand and to detach from our identifications with that, from our craving for certain conditions to, because we, we expect some pleasure, some comfort from them. So, in a way, in, re- in regards to the image that the Archon just brought in, the awakening is not to to be how do you say more part of this world or to kind of not be part of the world anymore. It's kind of it's it's beyond that that whole sense of what we call the world with the awakening is actually falling apart. And I'm I'm not so how do you say so so well in verbalizing that as the Achan just did and I feel like a lot of this question you have already touched into by describing the, the conditioned chitta and the unconditioned chitta yeah, the liberated chitta and, and I feel awakening shows us I mean I'm talking here really theoretically yeah <laughs> I haven't gone through awakening. So how I understand it is that with awakening, there is the letting, and somehow it's the letting go of the attachment to the conditions which we create our world, which, with which we create our experiences, how we are attaching to them, how we are getting, almost like how we are getting caught in the web of the spider. Yeah? 
when when we wake up, it means we are actually stepping out of the wheel of samsara. We are not, how do you say, we are not caught in the wheel anymore. We still see the wheel. We still see what is happening around us. But with awakening, we are stepping out of that. Would you like to say anything more to that, Arjun? Well, uh, yeah, thank you. Mm. Yeah. Mm. See, again, the world is really, from the Buddha's point of view, what is meant by the world is just this created phenomena. Mm. Like, for example, if if any if we asked, okay, what's Bjattenberg to you? You probably get quite a series of different impressions, you know, about what this is, what you saw, what you noticed. If you lived here, you'd certainly see a different place than I do. Mm. You know, you probably see the the way you know where the the paintwork and the floor and the drainage system and the <laughs> I don't know, I don't see shrines and mountains. Or <laughs> you know, what 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 do you see? And if you, you know, when you sit there and you, your eyes are closed, your world appears, doesn't it? Your memories, your regrets, your joys, your aspirations, your thoughts, your people you know, they're there. That's the world. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's, it's, uh, it's dependently arisen. It's dependently arisen. It's not a real, lasting thing out there. It's dependently arisen. Very subjective. So, awakening and awakening is held in say to be have different stages to it. You know, where certain beliefs are released. So, you know, the first level is is the uh, belief that sort of one exists inside. You know, one is this chatting voice in the head, belief in Mano in a way, the secretary, and what what he or she creates. You know, that's just that. And there's an awakening to that, rather than just following it and just really believing this is what I am. Jitta produces this this phenomenon. Which starts to organise things, at least we know what it is. And then if you don't blindly follow it. So that's some degree of awakening. And so that, that process means there's a gradual sort of awareness gradually separating itself from these phenomenal bases of phenomena. You know. Until the phenomena have no basis, they don't arise. So, for example, you know, the, the phenomena that don't arise are not trees and cows, but things like anger and doubt, which actually are the underpinnings of our, of our world. What we see is based upon where our 
interests and hurts and needs are. So when those disappear, yeah, you can see, you can hear, you can, t- you know, but it's not generating this whole phenomenal world of compulsions and preferences and agitations. It just, okay, you know. So that's that's that process. And it sound it could sound kind of bleak, but actually, what it what it does mean that then. You know, instead of generating it, it could be much more. You know, there's an, an energy there because of this very condition called life. You know, where there's a life force. It's also a condition. It lasts for so long and then it's gone. And life force, as it arises, as it's there, and jitta receives that. There's a kind of warming effect, and this is. Essential, the essential arising of you know the most fundamental arising of jitta is into resonance. It, it sympathizes. That's why I say the basic goodwill is the first arising of jitta. It seeks welfare. It seeks. It resonates. It sympathizes. It opens. And then it gets confused. Does it? Oh, don't. Oh. <laughs> 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 so that, that, that the, you know, you can also see when, when stuff, when it's strong enough to not get hit and, and uh, confused by things, this lovely purity can emanate while this life is here. While this life force is here, while this candle is burning, it can shine light. You know, while it lasts, and when it's gone, it's gone. But in this very life, there can be, and you, you can witness it, and you can sense it in people who've practiced. You can sense there's a, there's a loving and a radiance and a light there, that that warms. You know, and it's not associated with thought but it can illuminate thought it's, it's, it gets behind all that and that you see is a kind of almost the fundamental early fundamental when the jitta has into this birth it arises with that sympathy fundamental sympathy and then it because it isn't it gets confused and it gets mistreated and it gets Deceived, and it starts to lose that. It gets frightened. It gets nervous. It gets defensive. It starts to get aggressive and manipulative because of the impurities that uh, come in through this mine sense. So there's a conditioned arising of all that. So it's not, you know, it's not that the awakening is is kind of like, you know, that one's dead. <laughs> Sometimes it seems like language ceasing, cessation, ending. All that's ending is suffering. 
stress. And you won't see anybody who's practiced who says, "Oh, I wish I hadn't. I wish I hadn't woken up. It was much nicer." No, my life is miserable and dead. No, they're all saying, this is really good, you know. <laughs> and you can, you, can, you can sense it from people who, who, have, who have eliminated a lot of their the fetters and defilements. They're not, they're not dead. They're extremely alive, beautifully alive. In a way, that also answers the second part of the second question. It's like the relationship between healing and awakening. It's like when I don't know what the question meant by by healing and awakening, but I would say like when we are afflicted by by desire, by um, aversion, and by delusion, that like awakening is healing those afflictions. It's kind of freeing us from the effects, from the impact that they have. And so what the Achan just described was like when we are slowly moving out of that and more and more towards awakening by letting go of that, what binds us into are onto those afflictions and um, with in, the, in that process actually the healing happens yeah? so it doesn't mean when that people who are awakened that they don't have any illnesses anymore physical illnesses of course they do they still have physical bodies yeah? but the the healing is going much, much deeper than the body. It's, it's kind of um, en- encompassing everything, all that that binds us to to be born, like to be born again, to be reborn, like the the chitta that isn't free, that gets kind of that that moves on into the next existence. So. The healing that is happening with awakening is the freeing from that bondage. Yeah? It's the freeing of moving out of those conditions that bind us onto the wheel of samsara, I would say. So I think in regards to that, would you like to add anything to yeah, you know, it's healing is is healing the these tremendous wounds that people mm. experience their loss of heart, their anguish, confusion, their phobias, addictions. These are the great wounds that people experience, and you know, in a way, every time. Due to being purer, then those those wounds are like open wounds through which our awareness pours, our mind pours through these wounds of exclusion and pain and, and disappointment and frustration and 
as the waking process, those those closed. It doesn't run out. Maybe a few bruises, but it doesn't run out. You know, so the healing makes it whole rather than broken. And that's definitely, you know, synonymous or part of what the whole awakening process mm-hmm. is about. If it's still running out, then you 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 know you 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 have to finish that. So just to kind of you know bear in mind, really, that, that when the Buddha gave his first teaching, he, he didn't talk about waking in life. He talked about stop suffering. You know, it's very colloquial, very down to earth. Everybody wants to know about that. Mm-hmm. And it means if you stop suffering, you just stop stop getting drunk. You know, that'd be a bit a bit awake, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> So what about this, why do we have to keep these rules anyway? If it's the unconditioned that frees us, why do we have to obey all these rules? This seems like, I, yes indeed, I've sometimes thought that. <laughs> but uh, I have to humbly recognize, yeah, but to get to the unconditioned I have to obey some rules. <laughs> Because they, they are there to 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 restrain my impulsiveness. You know, it's not just a, they're not just for ornament ornaments. <laughs> they're to restrain my recklessness and my impulsiveness and uh, my addictiveness. <laughs> you know, well not mine, but the addictive qualities. They're to say stop, check, hold it, restrain, back, restrain the impulse. Because otherwise you keep creating more karma, you keep following that track, you can heap up more karma, more messy webs, you, you know, just out of compassion, just tidy up. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it would be nice if we could just do it through insight, but you don't get insight until you've had some, some restraint, you know. Checking impulses, that's what rules are about. And then, so then, then it's the unconditioned doesn't free us. It's rules that free us. When I mean rules, it means like, you know, you can take it down to where you steer attention, how you withdraw it, how you focus it. So it can be a very fine degree of, you know, appropriate attention, careful attention mindfully holding it that's what frees us and unconditioned is a, is a result of it it's not an unconditioned to do anything it's just the result of, of working through through you know instructions and, um, and guidance yeah Just very short, like the um, the rules and 
um, like the routine we got uh, we got to a monastic training, it's like actually supposed to bring up all the stuff. It's like, and also like you might experience when you are here on retreat with living with the eight precepts. To, you might feel that the how do you say the container is actually quite tight, much more tight than when you are outside, and that actually helps us to, or it makes it more obvious what is there that we need to work with. So, so the rules, like say the rules on the retreat that you are working with, like the the, the eight precepts, they actually help you to see what is just underneath the first a surface waiting for you to look at, to relate to, and to free yourself from. That's all I wanted to say to that. Do you sure. have any room? Oh, yeah. This? Okay. Um, there's a few on goodwill. Yeah. So... So if someone's having a hard time finding any goodwill, um, also um, how to blend goodwill and sharp discernment, any advice? That's a very good idea. <laughs> there you go, goodwill and discernment come together. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, great. <laughs> <laughs> so also how to get this sense of the embodied goodwill when we don't have the time to go into deeper states of meditation, say you're working or talking to somebody, conversations, difficult to really focus on your body and feel that quality. Yeah. So... So, so really, you know, I've used the word goodwill to um, refer not so much to, to metta, which is called kindness, so much as the basic sense of like a willingness, an openness, a sensitivity. That's, that's the word empathy, you know, it's actually, you know, it, it's not numb. We are, we are awakened to that sensitivity. And uh, rather than withdrawing or closing down with fear or regret or withdrawing from sympathy, sympathy, primal sympathy. So you see any, and of course things are shifting all the time, so you see any time when a sense of negativity dwindles, we can say, well, the dwindling of negativity means that the quality of fundamental sympathy is still present. Now, when we experience negativity, negative thoughts, anger, you know, greed, jealousy and so forth, well, as soon as you see that as an object, there's the negativity, there's the ill will, there's the aversion, there's the jealousy. How do you feel with that? So instead of it being what I'm doing, you know, which can feel like, you know, I really dislike this, I don't like that. There's my dislike. Okay. 
Now as soon as you've created that, you've established a potential for relationship. Instead of me being it, I can now be aware of it. Once I'm aware of it, there's the possibility of a relationship to that. Right? It's become an object rather than a subject. So now that quality of malice or ill will, when I've made it an object, it loses some of its intensity. And now the next step is, how does it feel to be afflicted with this experience? What does it feel like to have this experience happening to you? Unhappy. Ah, you're unhappy. Compassion. Because you're unhappy. So it's right right there. So it becomes an object that you don't identify with. You still have it, but there it is. And you relate to it. Then how does it feel to be with that? Dark, heavy, miserable. Could it be that really sensing that, what it is, as a disease, there's some sense of sympathy and compassion? That's where it, that's where it can come from. Yeah. Uh, why this kind of this is where discernment, you see, that's the primary act of discernment, is to see something clearly rather than just be wrapped up in it. So wrapped in it you don't we don't see it. We just are it and we're kinda seeing everything through that spectacles of ill will. We've got muddy glasses. Everything is covered with mud. <laughs> muddy world, miserable world. And then you see at least you know, hey, stay my glasses are muddy and you took them off and look at them. Oh, look at that. That's wisdom. <laughs> yeah, and then there's the possibility of, well, you could perhaps clean them up. Or you could put them down. Yeah, or you could see, yeah. But so, so the discernment is, is the ability to differentiate, be clear about what's happening so you're no longer merged in it. Discernment differentiates. Whereas the problem of confusions are we merge into them. Awareness merges into aversion, guilt. We feel we are them. And yet discernment says, no, that's happening to your chitta. And there's a possibility for a a sympathetic resonance. And so, you know, the, 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 so the, you know, if you language it, you know, for the, the confused person who, you know, oh, I feel really, nah, I hate people, they're so nasty, and they're so, you know, miserable, why is she always doing that, doing that? And then the wiser person says, this is the quality of ill will, it's not worthy of me. I don't need this. You know, then it can be put down. So that's, that's the function of wisdom. Because also it can track things clearly.
So goodwill is not some just some kind of, you know, impulsive emotion. It's the it's the clear resonance with experience straight from the heart. It takes these different forms. Compassion, which tends to, you know, not add suffering to suffering. How are we doing? So, goodwill. And so when you're trying to practice this in your daily life, yeah, you can't. But remember, embodiment doesn't mean a very fine, necessarily a fine scrutiny of every sensation. It can. You can really deepen it to, to subtle, you know, awareness of all sorts of different textures in this experience. But it could be just, where are my feet? <laughs> you know? Like I'm really steamed up about this, that and the other and people should never do this to me and how dare they know what's happening with my feet. Alright, okay. And suddenly you, you it helps you to stand back from these emotional cascades. So when you're working, feel your hands, feel your feet, feel your body when you're working. That's embodiment. So, you know, you, you, you can that's why I think it's useful because Wherever you are, it's, your body's there, really. <laughs> so, you know, you can't, actually your wisdom isn't immediately apparent, but your body is. So you, you come into that, and it will help to just, oof, help to just give you some leverage on these, you know, emotional and psychological outflows. It's simple, because the body doesn't do that. So I think it's very helpful to incorporate. And sometimes I've suggested to people just in your working day, and it's very simple, but still it's difficult to do. Uh, you know, your working day just every now and then take ten seconds. Where am I? Breathe out. That's it. Just that. Doesn't take long, but it breaks the momentum. And that's why it's difficult to do. It sounds completely easy, doesn't it? Yeah. But uh, when you're in the momentum, oh yeah, right, I'll get round to doing that in a while. Let's got to do this first. So the, 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 it's right there. If you if you if you make use of it, you can do that. Here am I, and then really what's important, and stop and pause, what's important. And the quality of goodwill is like sympathy, like, oh, don't let yourself get caught in this one, please. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like caring for yourself, a moment when you care, you know, you could go down that track again and argue and complain, and but you could just say, oh, just, just please look after your heart. So the embodiment gives us that chance to just pull back. So that's how it works.
we're coming along in our time and uh, I think it's touch on one relationships relationships and resonances or <laughs> actually I've, I've we are coming actually close to nine o'clock you know I've, I feel yeah Okay. Yeah. Um, I mean, maybe we can do it tomorrow at some point. Oh, we can bring some it into of, I mean, I have okay. all these left. But it might be that as we look at these, this will inform talks. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. Yeah, it's just also letting, letting the verbal stuff take, what, take what's been offered and uh, hope some of it's been useful. <laughs>